You are listening to Explore by the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, my name's Richard Moore. I'm with Lionel Burney. Hello, Richard. Hello, Lionel. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. Yeah. Have you been getting out on your bike this week? Um... Yes, uh, of course. Uh, also on my on my turbo trainer this morning, but mountain bike, uh, road bike, quite a lot. But not Lionel, not my gravel bike because I don't have a gravel bike. <laughs> but that 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 is what we're going to be talking about in this week's episode, isn't it? It is indeed, Richard. Yeah, these are all different flavors of cycling, but they are all unmistakably the same activity there's a same sport aren't they even on a turbo trainer when you're not going anywhere you're still cycling certainly was certainly was um this episode of explore the fourth in our mini series is subtitled or titled even the battle for the soul of gravel Uh, what do we mean by that well in the episode one of this series uh we included a report from uh, an event that was billed as the first professional gravel race Filippo Pozzato organized it in Veneto. I was there to witness it. It was uh, certainly on gravel. It was a race and it was on gravel and it had professionals taking part. So I didn't really see anything wrong with the description, but some of our listeners did take issue with it, Um, particularly people based in America where gravel racing is probably more developed. It's been around for a bit longer and there's certainly a bigger scene there. And I became aware of... uh, not a battle for ownership, but a, a sense that um, gravel racing exists as a particular flavor of thing. And um, there is among some of the pioneers, certainly, and others who have got quite into it, a desire to keep that spirit and that atmosphere around gravel racing. And the idea of a professional gravel race was in, in some respects an oxymoron. It was, it, it jarred a little bit with some people. Um, one email uh advised us that if we were to talk about gravel racing again we should really get an american on the podcast so well we've we've put that right in this week's episode haven't we well how many americans are we going to hear from in this episode we are going to hear from two americans an australian and an irishman there's a joke about them all going into a pub brewing here if we're not careful so maybe we should get to um maybe we should get to the point i feel i can say that as a as a as a british slash irish person so um you know i'm not i'm not i'm not setting us up to malign Mm. anyone of any nationality and i'm certainly not setting us up to malign uh gravel um but who are we going to hear from first richard well we're going to hear from a colleague of hers kaylee frets um who is the editor at cycling tips and kaylee uh was the first well a few years ago he began talking a lot about gravel i'm not going to say he's the first person i heard talk about gravel racing you'll maybe touch on that in a moment lionel but kaylee came up with this term "grode" a few years ago um basically road race road road riding on gravel um that never really caught on but i thought i'd check in with kaylee to get to get from him a sense of what the scene is like in the US at the moment. We're going to hear also from Ian Boswell, who um, transitioned from the World Tour to gravel this year and won arguably the biggest gravel race in the world, Unbound. We're hearing from Tiffany Cromwell, who's making a similar transition, but also keeping her World Tour um, career going too. So she's combining uh, them both. And they're quite different, Ian and Tiffany, in their 
approach to, to gravel racing, as we'll hear. We're going to also finally hear from a young rider, Finlay Newmark, who is going to be leaving behind his dreams of becoming a world tour professional, um, at least for the moment, to pursue an alternative path next year. And that's a very interesting story too. But Lionel, we did take the advice from one listener to get some American voices onto this topic of, of gravel and where gravel is at the moment, because there's a lot going on. The UCI are getting involved, governing bodies. Um, the UCI uh, want to launch a, a World Series, a World Championship. The industry is obviously hugely involved and influential in what's happening with uh, the equipment that you use to ride on gravel. Um, but we wanted to get an American on, and you couldn't get much more American than buying a trash can in Walmart, which is exactly what <laughs> Kaylee Fretz was doing when I called him. Hello, Kaylee. In a, in, How are you? In a Walmart, buying a trash can is is just about the most American thing I can think of. <laughs> I thought I'd do that just for you. One yeah. um, listener, who I presume was American, wrote in and said that if we want to talk about gravel, we really should get an American on the show. <laughs> we weren't qualified. <laughs> um, so, I mean, my, my mind immediately went to you because uh, I, I look on you as one of the pioneers. I'm not sure if that's right or not, but... You came up with the term "grode," which which never never caught on, <laughs> really, did it? Or did it? I apologize for that. I really do. Yeah. No, no, it was good. It was good. Has it caught? <laughs> maybe it has caught on. And I, I just don't, we're we're, we're I, ten years behind America here, of course. So it 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 ended up. It was on the cover of Bicycling Magazine. I think that was its its zenith, mm. really. Uh, it, but it was, it was. I mean, that word was largely an accident, anyway. So it's okay if it sort of fades off into the into the mm. sunset. Mm. But what um, yeah. for you? You came up with that a few years ago, and it did describe something that would only become apparent to the rest of us maybe a couple of years later. That that gravel riding was a, a thing, and quite a popular thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think that was largely just because of where I was living at the time, uh, which was in Boulder, Colorado, where there's a lot of really good road riding, but there's basically everything in between. The pavement is well, growed for lack of a better term, uh, dirt roads, gravel roads, whatever you want to call them. And so we were already doing it. And there was this, uh, basically you can go back to a technological improvement. Disc brakes showed up and all of a sudden we could put fatter tires on every single bike that we had. And we realized that, well, we didn't realize we didn't invent this, but sort of separately from the rest of the gravel movement everyone where i was living just started riding big fat tires on gravel roads and then the industry kind of caught up and realized that there was a bunch of money to be made and i think that kind of combined with uh well a lot of people getting hit by cars on roads and a desire to stay away from that and those two things in the last five years brought us where we are I that, mean, that, that's my really quick assessment of it yeah my impression is as well that you have the um the infrastructure if you like the network of of the type of gravel roads that are fun to ride on on a not on a mountain bike but on a road bike essentially an adapted road bike where it's that fine gravel you've traveled a lot in europe i mean do you think that's kind of unique to america as well just the sheer quantity of of roads like that 
Uh, I would say yes. Uh, I mean, we just have a lot more space, right? And, you know, particularly out where I live in the West, there's just, there's more roads than than they really can reasonably pave because mm. they don't take, they don't get used that much. So they end up just sort of grading them, uh, which is they, they sort of pull these huge sort of tractor like devices over the top of them. And then they squish the, the, the dirt down. And like you said, you can, you can ride them on road bikes and we've been riding on road bikes for, for decades, really from on 25 millimeter tires. It's just a lot more fun on a, <laughs> on mm. a bigger tire. Uh, but yeah, you're right. You're hundred percent right. That the, we have a lot more, access to the type of riding that is sort of commonly referred to as gravel mm. relative to our, our friends in Europe for sure. Because, you know, when I, when I, when I cover the Giro or something like that and I head up and I go just climb up some random mountain before the stage starts on my road bike, it's paved, right? That everything's paved. All those, these silly little roads that were you know, created in, in world war one or world war two or, or whenever they're all paved and we just never paved them. And particularly, like I said, in, in the Western U.S., we just never paved those roads. And so you need something a little bit more. Well, you need a gravel bike uh, and, <laughs> to, you know, to sort of fully enjoy the riding. Yeah. And, and the gravel scene riding and now racing is really developed in, in America. And, and I, I, you know, I don't disagree at all with the the view that it, it, it belongs in America to some extent. And it, it started there and, and and you own it, you you Americans, to some extent. But... <laughs> Can you see this? Can, can you see a kind of problems emerging? As anything grows, you get these divisions, don't you? And you know, we've had in the last couple of years a lot of professional riders going into the the gravel scene, I suppose, and all of them being very, very making big efforts to you know to reassure people that they're not going to corrupt it in some way. But I, re- I read a, <laughs> an interesting little piece by Colin Strickland, who you know, who's one of the leading gravel riders, and. He, oh, yeah. he wrote a piece where he said, you know, I specifically would like to welcome the riders venturing over to gravel from the elite pro road racing world to compete with us in these wild and woolly gravel events. Great. All are welcoming gravel, he says, blah, blah, blah. But I would like to share a couple of important insights on gravel racing. <laughs> so there's a, there's a big but there. Um, you know, can you see not problems ahead, but, but there is a spirit to it. Um, can that be maintained if as you say, the industry's got really involved. It's worth a lot of money to the industry now. And the UCI want to get involved as well. Are these, are yeah, these, thre- mean, are these threats or opportunities to, to it? Oh, that's a, that's, that's a, that's a big question. I, I, I think I see them, I see them sort of more as opportunities because I think that fundamentally the sort of quote unquote spirit of gravel, uh, that can still exist in a lot of different places. And, and, and I, mostly see this stuff sort of layering on top of that right which is you know the 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 core the core of gravel racing in the united states is all of the sort of participant folks right just showing up and and the goal is just to get to the finish line the goal is not winning anything not winning any money not you know repping any sponsors just literally this is a really hard day in the saddle i want to get to the finish line that in itself will be will be success for me right and that is sort of fundamentally in conflict with with the guys and gals at the front who are pinning it right who are trying to race who are trying to rep sponsors who are trying to make a living off of this uh but at the same time the fast folks the pros they don't change how 
my day goes in the back, right? They have no effect on me whatsoever. <laughs> and so I think that the two things can kind of exist in, in some harmony. Uh, there are events that will always cater to one or the other. Uh, ah, there, there's no, there's, there's no, there's no easy answer to that. Right. Because there are people who will look at these events changing and not like that. People don't like change. There are also people who, who are making the changes who are saying, well, this is what we want out of it. And I don't think there's anything really wrong with that either. Uh, so I guess, uh, yeah, I guess I fall in the sort of opportunity camp. Mm. I, I, I appreciate the, I appreciate where gravel comes from. And, you know, like I, I ran a sort of underground race, not really a race series, an underground event thing in Boulder for a little while with, you know, no finish lines, no timing. Really. Underground. Is this uh, the next frontier? It's like caving on bikes. Is this, you, know, you, you, yes. you gave us Grode. What are you going to call this? Well, this was called Secret Grode. <laughs> Cave biking. Uh, cave biking yes uh no I, like i ran this event and you know sometimes fast people would show up and they would go and do the thing, whole thing as fast as they possibly could and then a bunch of other people would show up and they would stop for coffee halfway through and, and a slice of pie up at gold hill above boulder and I, I think that's sort of the beauty of it is that you can have the full spectrum of people within the same event and i think that anybody who says no 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 this event is just for my type of rider i think that's a little bit myopic and 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 frankly, sort of that's the bit that's against the quote unquote spirit of gravel for me is anybody who's saying that the way I do it is the way that it has to be done. I, I, I fundamentally disagree with that mm. more than I disagree with, you know, racers shouldn't race gravel races. <laughs> like, and, and then I, there are all these if, other if issues. If you want to go fast, go for it. There are all these other issues like, t- you know, t- team teamwork or a lot, a lot of races. The, the, well, the women start with the men, and there've been controversies yeah. there involving Tom Danielson and his team. And you know, you can you can see um, you can see conflict there and, and, and tensions as as it as it develops. I naively yeah. thought that gravel riding, gravel racing, was literally just riding or racing on gravel. But but no, I mean, as soon as something grows a little bit, the politics come into it, don't they? They definitely do. Uh, yeah, I mean, there was a couple of instances of that over the summer, um, but particularly of allegedly uh, women showing up to start lines with essentially a male like set of domestiques <laughs> to 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 get them to the finish line. Uh, you know that that's I do kind of come back to a lot of gravel events. In fact, a lot of mountain bike events too have a rule something along the lines of don't be a dick uh and i kind of like that rule which is like if you have to ask yourself whether something is acceptable or should be acceptable it's probably not right and so i I, it's not that i think that you know you should build a bunch of rules around oh you can't bring domestics or whatever it's just i just think it's a little bit slimy uh and it is it's it is kind of it runs in contrast to to the way that a lot of these events were started which was very much you get there under your own power, no outside help. Those were some, some of the only rules in, in early gravel events were basically surrounding what outside help you could get. So I understand why people are particularly sensitive to, to these particular issues, with like the, the, the domestique issue, the support issues, the mechanical support issues. That, that does kind of get at what gravel was right from the very start. Uh, but I don't... <laughs> Again, this is where it can kind of split into into multiple parts, right? Like, 
if the fast people at the front want to be racing, then build some rules around racing. You know, the, we, we know that you need rules around racing because human beings are competitive and they will try to find advantage in whatever way they possibly can. And so you need rules at the back. It, that doesn't matter because, you know, if I go ride a gravel event with my wife and I pull her into a headwind, nobody cares at all. So you can still have these sort of, you know, yeah. the, the mullet, the mullet protocol is, I think what Ted King calls it, which is like uh, business at the front party at the back. And, you know, I think that that, that can be very much the, the way that these things are run, which is that if you are signed up, you know, with a, with a UCI license or whatever's coming down the line from the UCI, then yeah, you follow these certain set of rules and the rest of us, just like at a grand fondo or whatever, you know, very modest we don't there, really Kaylee. follow the same rules. I, I've seen you on a bike. I know that you're, you're, you're not parting at the back. You're racing at the front. <laughs> <laughs> These days I'm partying at the back. Well, listen, <laughs> I'm, I'm a, I'm a back partier. I appreciate your American perspective on, on these things, Colorado perspective in particular. Um, so thank you very much. Have you, have you found any attractive looking trash cans? I, I have, I found a, a nice matte silver. I think it's oh, going to yeah. go well. That look, that sounds yeah. nice. <laughs> I'd go for Good that chat one. With Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Kaylee. I'll let you go and pay. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, title sponsor to the Cycling Podcast and all our shows, including Explore. Super Sapiens allows you to continuously monitor your blood glucose levels, enabling you to learn more and make informed choices about fueling. And they've just launched a new energy band which sits on your wrist and syncs directly with the Abbott Libra Sense Glucose Sport Biosensor via Bluetooth to display minute-by-minute minute glucose data. For more information on Super Sapiens, go to supersapiens.com. Well, Richard, it's great to know what Kaylee Fretz gets up to in the off-season, buying a trash can in Walmart. <laughs> in his spare uh, time. In his spare time, yeah. What's, a, what's the British equivalent of that? I don't know. Maybe listeners can... What's the quintessential British off-season pastime? Um, I remember uh, Kaylee sort of using the term growed almost uh, de deprecatingly, didn't he? I mean, he, he wasn't taking himself or the concept too seriously. Um, he, he was just sort of trying to plant the seed of this as a, an alternative style of cycling. But when we started talking about this subject, Richard, of of gravel racing and the, the battle for its soul and i guess part of that is a, a battle for the the ownership of the concept it did remind me of a ride i did in 2007 or 2008 called the tour of the cornfields in cambridgeshire in the southern part of england and this was an off-road sportive uh, 100 kilometers in length and it basically took us crisscrossing over fields cornfields which had uh, obviously been harvested harvested at that point so the sort of the the, the stubble of the corn was uh, 
you know, stretching across the fields and, and we were on the edges of those fields and then darting out into country lanes and, and gravel tracks, farm tracks. And it would have been the absolute ideal event for a gravel bike. But back then I was riding that on a cyclocross bike. And, you know, it didn't feel like something that was at the vanguard of a cycling movement. I must admit at that time, some people did it on mountain bikes, some people did it on cyclocross bikes, but it felt much more like a crossover into the cyclocross world, something for cyclocross riders to do in the summer rather than a sort of an alternative scene. So it's really interesting to see um, how a particular branch of the sport can kind of grow, take root and you know really come to be dominant particularly in one part of the world it's interesting that the the americans have been at the forefront of this and i wonder whether some of the unease is precisely because the uci is trying to formalize and uh, place rules and restrictions and 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 try to you know set its own definition of what gravel racing actually is perhaps that's why people are uneasy about that I mean, cornfield riding, that's a niche within a niche, isn't it? Um, but, it, I mean, it, it, there are parallels with, with mountain biking, which, you know, was around from the, the 70s. Again, American pioneers, quite quite a well-known story. But the sport, the activity, didn't really become clearly defined and, and really popular until the industry um, uh, got so involved as they did in, in the... I want to say the sort of early early nineties, early to mid nineties, when you know front suspension, uh, rear suspension bikes um, began being mass produced, and single track trails became much sought after, and that the sport really it kind of had a false start earlier than that, and then it really took off in the nineties and into the early two thousands. But um, you know the industry is an important player in this. Um, shall we hear now from? Uh, a rider that, that we know well is featured on many episodes of Explore, Ian Boswell. Ian was a world tour professional for many years with Team Sky and then Katusha Alpeson. He retired after a concussion at Terreno Adriatico in 2019, retired at the end of that season, and um, has become a, a gravel rider. But he's become a high-profile gravel racer almost by accident, it seems. Um, as we'll hear now uh, in this interview, I, I caught up with Ian. Um, as he waited to become a father for the first time. His wife is about to give birth in a few weeks. Um, so his life's about to change again. And where gravel racing fits into that, well, let's find out. Well, Ian, gravel racing is new, but it does have a, a pretty strong identity already. And I wonder whether you coming into that scene this year felt as if there was any wariness not hostility but wariness and whether you felt that you had to behave and conduct yourself in a certain way to be accepted by the i suppose the guardians of what is a very fast developing branch of the sport yeah i mean it's uh I, you know i'm in a unique position in the sense that i came from road um so i have this experience you know there have been obviously other riders who have you know kind of made the jump you know first starting with with ted king and you know lawrence tendam and stetna and myself um and i think we all approached it at a point in our career when we were very much ready for something new and different and we approached it you know with hey this is like kind of a shift in our you know our psyche and our mindset you know we're still you know elite athletes and we're you know still working hard but we're doing it with a bit more a sense of how can we enjoy this and how can we kind of fall back in love with you know going to events and riding and i think that 
gravel racing in the U.S. has created this very unique, at the moment, you know, culture and kind of sense of community and where everyone is, you know, participating together. And of course, there's an emphasis on, you know, someone winning the race, but there's an emphasis on everyone who's participating. Um, and it, it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's still, you know, for the people who are who are racing, it's still a bike race and they're taking it serious. But there's a lot more to it than just the racing itself, um, you know, and just, you know, who won, who got second. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's gravel racing. It has grown so much. You know, I'm, I am very new to this. I mean, this year was my first year at these events. So I, I personally approached it very much with like, you know, I'm not here to like try and change things or step on people's toes. Like I want to observe it and I'm going to participate and I'm going to follow the, you know, the unwritten rules of, of the races that are kind of been, you know, put in place by those before me. Um, but with anything, you know, things change and evolve and develop. And, you know, there's no doubt that the emphasis of kind of professional gravel racing has grown and become more prominent. And I think that it's only going to continue to kind of go in, in that direction. And yeah, I listened to your podcast a couple of weeks back over in, um, Veneto with, with Pizzotto mm. and, you know, the world's first professional gravel race. And, you know, I don't know how many people here in North America would say that that's like the first, first professional gravel race. Um, because they would see like, you know, these American races, like, you know, the, the birthplace of, of gravel racing. Um, but you know, it's, and that's one thing that's the beauty of gravel at the moment is it's not really defined by anything. You know, there are races that are, you know, a hundred kilometers, there are races that are 250 kilometers and there's no real kind of set course of what gravel currently looks like or, you know, who can participate or, you know, the surfaces people are riding. Um, so it's still, I mean, it's probably, I wasn't really switched on to, to mountain biking in the early nineties, but I would assume that there's a lot of kind of parallels to a, a sport very much being kind of figured out. Hmm. And I guess um, coming in the, in the way that you did, uh, winning Unbound, arguably arguably the biggest one in the world, does that mean that you, you'll be very sensitive to people's um, uh, sense of, of, of protecting something that's, that's, that, they've, that they've cultivated and nurtured and developed? But you also become a sort of ambassador for the sport as well, don't you? I mean, that, that must have been quite strange that you became almost a, a spokesman for gravel racing after that win. Yeah, which has been funny. You know, it was my, you know, Unbound was my second ever gravel kind of, you know, big race. Um, and, you know, so in the subsequent months following, you know, I have been asked a lot of questions about, you know, kind of the the health of gravel or the, you know, the evolution of the sport. Um, and I don't know if I'm really the person to speak about it. I mean, that's just how I personally feel because I, I'm not one of the, you know, kind of per people who've been in this environment for a long time. Um, I will say though, you know, there's been an announcement from the UCI and USA Cycling that they're looking at hosting a world championships next year and, you know, kind of a series of events. And so for whatever reason, I've been brought into those, I've been on a few calls with, with them um, just to discuss and kind of, you know, really hear them out about what they're ideas are um, and there's still not really enough information that's been shared to kind of know the full scope of it um, and, and you know I guess one thing at the moment that's so kind of awesome being being an American rider is that you know this is really something that is you know uniquely American bike racing I mean, in the past we've tried to you know copy the model of, of European racing by you know you know the Tour de France works in France and the Giro in Italy so like oh let's make our you know, tour California, which, you know, was an awesome race, but 
it was always kind of searching for something. And in a way, you know, here in the US, we have these beautiful gravel roads and we've been able to kind of create our own discipline of cycling that is unique to, you know, to the landscape we have here and the environment and, and the culture. Um, and it's been successful and, and it'll be interesting to see how the kind of the globalization of gravel riding and racing does take shape. How do you feel about the UCI, the, the governing bodies, uh, you know, both nationally and internationally getting involved? Do you see that as a, as a positive move or, or potentially a, a threat to that, that spirit that has carried gravel racing so far? You know, my initial thought was like, oh, this is, this is horrible. Um, <laughs> you know, we don't, I don't know what this is. You know, I've, I've been in, you know, the UCI and, you know, governing bodies, like kind of umbrella racing for the majority of my career. Um, but again, I don't think I really know enough about it yet. And I guess the, you know, the unique position that I am in, you know, having a, a full-time job at, at Wahoo and kind of racing as well. Um, you know, I, while some people would consider me a professional rider, um, I don't always feel like one, you know, I'm not this, you know, I could decide that I, you know, Hey, next year I don't want to race and I could still go to events and just have fun. And there's no real consequence to that. Um, but I do see the fact that, you know, the UCI does have the ability to kind of scale gravel globally. And I, and I did speak with a world tour rider last week who is leaving the world tour to do graveling, to race gravel. And they live in Europe and they said, you know, essentially these are the races that they have to go to because that's that's kind of what's available next year with with gravel racing and whether it's europe or east asia um even south america you know so it's it's something that i think we're fortunate in the u.s where a lot of the riders here already have such a busy calendar it's like they can't even fathom adding more races um you know to qualify for the world championships and then go to the world championships because there's already so many events happening but when you look at the the global um kind of you know ability that the UCI has to bring these races elsewhere, you know, that is something that they do have, you know, the, the power to do. One thing I guess I, I worry about is that, you know, these, a lot of these gravel events in the U S started very, you know, grassroots. And it was like, you know, the first year is, I think the first year of unbound was like 10 people. They just met at a bike shop and did this ride. And then, you know, it's grown into this, you know, 4,000 person event with media coverage around the world. Um, and so it's kept kind of that, grassroots feel to it and i i guess my apprehension to the you know you know kind of globalization of you know sanctioned racing is you know how do people who are new to the sport that's their first experience in this um and so how does that then shift the kind of the overall feel and, and kind of culture um in the long run because it is kind of it's a big unknown not knowing what you know these events in, in europe will look like and and i said you know if people are going to UCI events to try to qualify for world championships, you know, there's a real emphasis on the racing and the performance side of it. And one thing you find at a lot of the American gravel races currently is there's attention on the the people winning. Um, but there's so much, you know, put into place to make sure that everyone who participates is, you know, comes across the line as a winner, you know, whether that's just finishing or, you know, doing your longest ever ride, there's very much this uniquely American participatory feel to it where everyone's out there together and everyone goes through the same thing. And I guess the the industry has grown so much in the U.S. thanks to gravel. You know, it's, you know, everyone wants a gravel bike. Um, and I would just hope that, you know, the, the governing bodies who are looking at, you know, expanding gravel kind of keep that in mind that, you know, how do you keep this welcoming to everyone while still adding a competitive nature to it? Mm. And 
I mean, you you mentioned there that you don't always consider yourself, or you don't consider yourself as a pre- professional cyclist anymore. But presumably, I mean, a lot of a lot of riders are um, becoming professional gravel riders, including the the World Tour rider that you mentioned there. I mean, there must have been offers, there must be opportunities for you to to go all in with cycling again. But you are combining it with other things, you know, your your job with Wahoo, podcasting, of course, as well. But um, were you tempted to to go? to go all in become a, a professional cyclist again or is it something you might do in the future or do you want to keep this balance in your life i was very tempted <laughs> just the thought of you know going back and, and you know not waking up on a monday morning as we're speaking here and you know opening my computer to, to emails that i need to get to um it was tempting but at the same time you know it was a big transition and we've we've spoken about it before you know kind of getting to the point where i was ready to walk away from professional road racing um, and in many regards, you know, I'm, I'm enhancing my life in, in other ways, you know, I'm gaining all sorts of new skills and talents and abilities. And, you know, I have this very, you know, fortunate position where I can go to, you know, a handful of races a year and, and focus on those and try to perform. But, you know, I have something else that also keeps me busy and distracted and, and really moving forward as, you know, as a, as a human, you know, and challenge me in different ways. And, you know, I think that's one thing I've come to, to realize is, you know, as a you know former professional road cyclist, you need these challenges constantly to to overcome. And if anything, you kind of thrive in this stressful environment. Um, and I think a lot of you know just the the day to day work I do with Wahoo, it, it does you know challenge me and frustrate me, but probably in a in a positive way. There must be part of you that 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 quite likes a Monday morning sitting at a desk opening the computer. Yeah, well, I guess I probably miss being on the team bus just whinging about everything. You know, I, it seems want, to be a pretty common trait. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but does it also make the, you mentioned earlier when we were chatting before we were recording that, you know, that you enjoy getting on the bike now to, 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 for your mental health as much as your physical health. I mean, it, has it made you appreciate the pleasure of riding your bike more having the, the balance that you've got now? Um, and, and do you want to take that into racing as well to make racing the, the sort of distraction, the, the fun part of your life? Yeah, I think that's completely accurate. You know, and that's one thing that, you know, I think back to the days when I was living in Nice and I had all day to do a ride and you just like, you know, some days you just don't want to do it as, you know, now I'm like, cool, how can I schedule my day today to get out for an hour and a half ride? And that's like, you know, such a, you know, such a motivating factor to, you know, wake up early and get some work done early so I can sneak out for a, a lunch ride. Um, and the same goes for the races, you know, to realization that you know cool i'm still able to you know travel to these races and and be on the start line with you know some of the best gravel racers in the world and with four thousand other people you know what a privilege to be there and and really seeing that as an an incredible you know opportunity and what fortune to be there rather than like oh this is my job i have to be here i have to perform in a way it's taken away the the pressure and the you know kind of stress of you know having that as my as my job really and it's uh yeah it's been an, it's been nice to find that balance and to realize that it has still been successful that that's interesting it, it allows me to circle back which is probably a phrase that you hear in some of your business calls these days um to the the very point at the start of this conversation about um you becoming this ambassador this advocate for gravel racing that that's kind of the point in a way isn't it that you you are probably representative of the majority of guys and girls who are racing on gravel that um, you're not, you know, a world tour pro becoming a professional gravel rider. You're you're something else. You're more typical of the gravel racer, perhaps. 
Yeah, I guess in in a sense, um, you know, I I there's no question that I definitely benefit from you know having raced in the World Tour for you know seven years and you know kind of just having the the knowledge and the know how and really the miles in your legs. Um, but if anything, you know, it, it impresses me so much more. You know, seeing these riders at you know whether it's Unbound or SBT, you know, people who are you know working full time jobs and have a family and they're still you know incredibly competitive i'm like wow like that is impressive you know the fact that people can somehow find a way to to manage and balance all these things in their life um you know oftentimes i you know have a rider here locally who i ride with mike barton who's got two kids and still just absolutely crushes it on the bike and i'm like that guy's a hero you know he he's got a full-time job as a you know a scientist and i'm like how does he how does he do it but he you know and just seeing how much joy the bike brings brings them you know so many times when you're around professional riders of course there's there's good days and times when people enjoy but there's so many days when you know you kind of are surrounded by people who are all doing the same thing and you're like oh why are we why are we doing this training ride today the weather's horrible and you kind of lose that sense of you know fortune you have to be there and doing that and what a unique opportunity is to be a professional athlete and Mm. have one thing to do that day and that's to go ride a bike so what what next year Ian? i mean you, you rode in kenya as well this year of course i know that was an unforgettable experience but what are the what are the big racing plans next year do you have them um set yet yeah i mean i have a, a tentative kind of calendar of races i would you know want to go to um again it's not going to be anything crazy you know i like i said i do have a, a full-time job and i have a baby on the way at, at the end of december so um you know, I think one thing that has been so great about, you know, kind of my setup is that I'm not, I mean, I'm racing full time, but it's, you know, I did seven races last year and I think I'll look at doing, you know, a similar number next year. And, you know, when you look at the world tour days, you're gone for, you know, 150 days a year doing 80, 90 races. Um, so the ability to just be home and, you know, have this chance to, you know, be a human off the bike, but still, you know, go to these races and, and really maximize the races you're at and, you know, because you're racing less, you actually enjoy every race you go to. So, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love to, um, I guess my biggest um, objective of next year would be to go back and try to have another clean run at, at Unbound. Um, for whatever reason, that race in particular was, uh, yeah, just something from a performance standpoint that I'd love to to be optimal for. Um, and outside of that, you know, I'll be back at, back at SBT and heading up to a race in, in Canada this year and you know, trying to discover and find some, some new events as well that are, you know, maybe in places that I would love to, to travel to. And I can kind of make a, you know, a long weekend out of it and, you know, race the roads, but also kind of, you know, embrace the, the environment and the culture and the community and, and all these different places that we get a race. Shoot, uh, shoot at du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, interrupting this episode of Explore to remind us to tell you that it is supported by... Le Parcours Professionnel. Le Parcours Professionnel. What are you doing, Richard? Le Parcours Professionnel. It's supported by Babel, Lionel, and that's... You just caught me in the middle of a French lesson. Uh, Would you believe it? I've been using Babel for a couple of years now to improve my French and it really it really does work um it's had a big effect on my French it's allowed I live in France now so it's had a a real um a real value to me and I've I've really noticed my progress as you can hear there that wasn't actually me talking that was the app itself but that's the kind of thing I'm learning have you been combining the lessons with any other kind of learning well living living there <laughs> and trying to trying to buy things in shops and so on um 
But it's the thing about Babel is it's it's fun. It's it's a um, very effective way of learning, but it's also a fun way of learning. And so it's not something that you put off. It's not something that you sort of dread at all. Um, it's actually a moment in the evening. I usually do it um, just after we put our son down to bed. 15 minutes or two lessons over maybe 25 or 30 minutes of actually, you know, stimulating and, and fun lessons, which uh, I enjoy. And, and I do feel they're making a big difference to my French in terms of my vocabulary and using phrases that actually um, are useful, um, you know, in day to day conversations and shops and so on. So as I say, Lionel, Babel's 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn a new language. They design their courses with practical real-world conversations in mind, things that you get to use in everyday life. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans, but Babel lessons were created by over 100 language experts, real people, so you do learn useful vocabulary and not meaningless phrases. Babel's teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective across multiple studies. It's available as an app or online and your progress will be synced across all devices. Babbel recently launched their own learning podcast as well, so you can brush up on your Spanish or French while cooking or exercising. And you can choose from 14 different languages. I know you've tried Italian. Uh, there's also Spanish, French, German, and others. Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and your accent, and that is a, a key thing if you don't say it correctly, um, then you get another uh, shot at doing it again. Right now, Babbel is offering our listeners six months free with a purchase of a six-month subscription with the promo code CYCLING. Go to uk.babbel.com slash play and use the promo code CYCLING for an extra six months free. That's uk.babbel.com forward slash play promo code CYCLING. So that was Ian Boswell. Really, um, always interesting to speak to to Ian and hear his thoughts. And it, it's fascinating that he had opportunities to throw himself back into professional cycling and become a professional bike rider again on the back of his win at Unbound. And he's chosen not to. Um, he's uh, taking a different path. And in that sense, he's a sort of perfect ambassador for the the wider gravel scene because it is a, a wide scene with a the whole point it seems to me is that there's a huge range of of abilities um involved taking part and everybody is equal in a, a gravel race it's not all about the winner um somebody who's taking a different approach very much a racer's approach to gravel is tiffany cromwell she's been a professional for a long time rides for canyon shram and over the last year or so has dabbled in gravel and alternative racing. And that seems to have really reinvigorated her. Um, and she's taking that professional approach into the gravel racing that she'll be doing next year. She won the, the Belgian waffle race in Kansas recently, one of the big gravel races in the US. Uh, next year, she'll be combining gravel and alternative races with the Women's World Tour calendar. And certainly the, the classics are still very important to her as well. So let's hear... Uh, about Tiffany Cromwell and her hopes for gravel racing in 2022. I wanted to to ask you about um, you know some of your recent exploits, um, particularly off road. Um, you've you've sort of uh, been one of these riders who's who's combined road racing with with alternative racing, I suppose. Um, can you tell me about the the Belgian Waffle Race recently in Kansas? Uh, it sounds fantastic what 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 was you won it but tell me what it was like 
Yeah, so um, yeah, part of the agreement this year with Canyon Tram was to do a mix of road and gravel. Plan was actually to do a bit more gravel, but because of uh, the Olympics and getting selected for that, then everything got a bit delayed. So I only did a few races. But yeah, so Belgium Waffle was the last one I did. I also did the uh, North Carolina version as well, which was quite fun. But the Kansas one, yeah, it was pretty a pretty solid day out, especially when it was October 31st, uh, four weeks after my last road race with Paru Bay. And to try to stay motivated for training was quite challenging. But yeah, it was 180k, I think, 175, 180k. Uh, not as much climbing as some of the other races. It was like uh, maybe 2,000 meters of climbing, give or take. Mm. But yeah, just endless gravel roads, um, continually undulating, which, you know, because everybody thinks Kansas is flat. But then when you actually go there, everybody also says, no, it's just constantly up and down and that it was. But what makes the Belgian waffle races more unique is they don't like to classify themselves as a traditional gravel race. Like they like to say, or their their story of how they created them was they want to create a US version of the Belgian classics, you know, like our Flanders, like our Roubaix, like our Gent Wevelgum. Okay, maybe not Roubaix because it's not in the Flanders, but you know, the, that style, but because they don't have cobbles in a lot of places in North America, they're like, let's go off road. And then, so yeah, it's usually a mixture of road and gravel. Some are more road heavy than gravel heavy. Like I think their uh, flagship one in San Diego. You can actually do on a road bike just with some thicker tyres. Sometimes it's a bit on the limit, but versus Kansas, you know, we had maybe 80% gravel. And then there was also some single track thrown in there, like proper single track, uh, some pretty rocky sections. There was like a little cyclocross sector that they made for something fun. And, and, yeah, and yeah, at the end, it was like a really, really cool flowy single trail as well. So, but yeah, the idea is always so there's surprises and, and yeah, just that it's, epic you know that's always <laughs> kind of the feeling they want to create and then that there's belgian waffles at the start and the finish and belgian beer so and yeah, that's quite... you mentioned the distance the length i mean it is you know the races do tend to be a lot lot longer is that is that something you've found that you enjoy and that, that you're good at and, and has that been a revelation to you or did you always know that you had that in you no the the length i don't enjoy that's the one thing i think that with gravel is the part that if it was up to me, I'd like to change it because I enjoy, you know, shorter, faster racing, get it done in three, four hours. Um, so, but I think I have the mental capacity and obviously I have the engine from years on the road and, you know, even in my preparations for the race, like I was doing one hour rides for, I did, I think one three hour, one four hour ride in that four week stint, but it was literally just ticking the legs over. But I think it's a mixture of freshness and having a whole season in my legs and also being many years of racing in my legs that can get me through it but for sure it's yeah you go through phases like you know this time as well because normally it starts all together mass participation men and women so then you know you start way above your limit you know for the first hour if you're trying to stick with the men because the women's race is normally just a race within a race it's like stay with the men for as long as possible and then usually you hang on and win it's kind of a last one standing versus part of like the Belgian waffle they're also really trying to focus on equality and really give the women a platform. So they start us 10 minutes later, so then we'll catch some of the slower, slower men doing the waffle, but we kind of had our own race. So that made it a bit more manageable at the start for me because that's what I found in a couple of the other races. Like I was going way over my limit at the start and I was like, how can you continue this for seven hours of racing? But um, so it's, yeah, something I need to maybe get better with, but I'm also good as a diesel, like if I need to. 
but trying to combine it with a road, it's that's where it's a bit borderline because you don't want to become too diesel for the road, but you still want to be able to do the gravel races and last a distance on bike for, for the wins. Well, I mean, what was your first um, introduction to, to riding gravel? You know, do you remember the first time you gave it a go and, and what you thought of it? Yeah, actually, it was the SBT gravel race in 2019. Um, we were out there to race Tour of Colorado, uh, and Canyon were a major sponsor for that race, um, the, the SBT Gravel. And they'd asked myself and Ella Harris, my teammate, if we would do it because it was like a, few, a week before or a few days before the tour started. So the team were all for us doing it and supporting it, but they were like, you know, enter the shortest race. We don't want you doing the big one. Your your goal is obviously the Colorado Classic, and we don't want you to, you know, de- de- be, that be detrimental to your performance. But we managed to push it a little bit and do the blue run, blue race, which was a hundred mile, and that was my first ever experience. And yeah, I just thought it was great. Like the atmosphere was super relaxed. Like everybody's friendly, wants a good time. You get on the start line, you push yourself, and yeah. And I also liked the idea of racing with the men. I had, you know, because it's you had the support with the women, but at the same time, they also kind of you kind of work together with them as well. So it's you know mutually beneficial. And and yeah, it's just the whole culture was really fun and just i think because i had zero pressure as well so i could just go out there just enjoy riding my bike enjoy the challenges that gravel had as well um because it's that nice medium between mountain biking and road like mountain biking for a lot of people is a bit too technical versus road you know is a lot more tactical versus i feel like gravel is that really discipline for anybody and yeah so that was that and then you finish and everybody's you know there's music there's you know people are mingling and just saying how was it you know just having a good time and yeah and just being relaxed and there was like no pretentiousness or anything like this so yeah and i was like so then when i was proposed at the end of 2020 you know to incorporate into my program for 2021 i was like sure that sounds great <laughs> i like that idea and what about the racing can you see that you mentioned that it's very relaxed and social and that there isn't the same atmosphere but even in the short time you've been doing it has that has that been changing at all is it because there is more focus on these races now you know people are are more invested in in watching them following them and 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 then who wins can you see any any changes there to the culture around it or is that has it kept on to that for the moment I think it's borderline for sure. Like, you know, when they announced that UCI were going to come in and create a Gravel World Series and a World Championship, pretty much every Gravel person were against it. They're like, that's taking away the spirit of Gravel, this, that, whatever. So I think it is quite defensive as they want to create their kind of free spirit nature and make their own rules and not be highly regulated sport. But the flip side, yeah, I've seen more people getting more serious. You're seeing more ex-pros getting involved, more sponsors or industry partners who are coming in and putting investing into gravel with particular riders or with teams per, to an extent, but still gravel is still quite individual, I would say. But definitely from 2019 to 2021, I saw a big difference just in you know the competitiveness. Like there was even on the women's side, a lot more women doing it. Um, I didn't expect it to be as big a difference going from you know like the hundred mile to the the main event. I don't know if it was the same before or it's just that it's gone way more competitive. So it's just crazy for the start. And then, you know, it filters out very quickly. But I think more and more people are wanting to do it. More and more road athletes are wanting to do it. And more teams are seeing the importance of 
fielding some riders in gravel races for 14 partners for the exposure and everything else i think we are going to see more crossovers um between the road and the gravel and even other disciplines like you know mountain bike riders doing it as well and and things like this but yeah and also when there's money involved like prize money you see a big difference as well like you know people are really caring about like the aid stations and this and that you know um because that's also part of it it's like learning when you're going to stop when you're not going to stop a lot is a bit self-sufficient you can't have your own people on the side of the roads it's like you have to say okay i'm going to stop at this station hope that the people with me do or maybe i choose to not stop there try get a jump on people you know and maybe gain one group further ahead because with the women's race you also half the time don't know where the other women are you're just hoping you're like i'm around this point in the race but maybe i'm 10th maybe i'm fifth i'm not really sure because you know it splits so quickly and there's so many people that starts but at least you know but every race is different like with bwr like they were really good at updating us and also make it so we didn't have to stop it's like handing bottles so you could just grab and go you know or you could stop and have a rest so it's yeah, for sure it's going to get more serious, but I think it will still keep certain aspects of the of the gravel spirit, but there are also some areas that I believe probably need to be a little bit regulated, you yeah, know, in yeah. terms of what's the true definition of um, self-sufficient or, or having support or, you know, there needs to be clear lines, black and white, of what you can and cannot do in terms of certain things yes i mean it's really interesting we were i was in veneto recently for filippo pozzato's gravel gravel racer and we did a feature on it on the podcast and we had a bit of reaction from people in america you know that's not real gravel racing you know there's already this kind of battle for the soul of, of gravel racing um and especially i think in america where they perhaps feel that that it's their thing which is it's kind of fair enough because i mentioned that the network of roads there they clearly have a huge um network a huge natural resource for for gravel riding and gravel racing so that's where the sport probably will develop over the next few years i mean what what do you think about the uci getting involved and and having this kind of uci world series are you are you in favor of that is that something that you'd like to to target uh for me personally obviously because i've always been in the uci kind of system like i think it's good to an extent, providing they allow that to stay a bit more gravel. But what would be nice to say, yes, there is the one series that we know. Because at the moment, it's really tricky to say, which racer should I do, being non-American, mm. you know, and taking my time to travel over there. For sure, as you say, it's still going to be the hub, but it would be nice to get some races here in Europe or even like Australia actually has a really good network, you know, once you get out the cities of gravel roads and there it's getting also quite popular as well. And I think the UK too. But, you know, it would be nice to say, hey, all right, because going to America every other month isn't feasible for me for when I'm also wanting to still focus on the road. But if you had a few more races in Europe and you could say, yeah, I can go do that, go do that, it's not as big a travel. And, you know, if we can say here's a calendar that everybody is doing, you know, here, there and ever, I can say, okay, I can target these races. These are the important races and everything else. Because, yeah, at the moment it's still tricky you know, when, when you're far from America. But for sure, America, they want to hold as their mantle because you do see it like it's getting bigger and bigger every year, more and more races over there. And But, you know, and I also think it's kind of cool to be able to fight for a rainbow jersey. Like thing, things like that, it's just another opportunity. But that's also because, you know, I know the importance of the rainbow jersey versus with gravel, maybe they don't really care about that because they don't really want statuses and all these sorts of things. But But, yeah, for sure, like, you know, 
their mentality. Like I didn't. I saw Pizzato's one there, and actually, when I first saw it list, I was like, "Oh, that's super cool. I'd like to do that." But then, you know, it was pros only, male pros only. So, for sure, yeah. I can see why there was a bit of backlash there. Like it would have been cool yeah. if they went already at the start. We're going to have a men and women pro race, but as they say, you know, gravel is so much about inclusivity. It's a new new discipline that they've been able to kind of path their own way and that's the biggest thing i've seen with it like you know so many races really push for the equal men and women equal distances equal like everything you know because there is no history to say we need to do it another way and i think that's what's quite unique and special as well that i really like what you know they're doing and you know if it does come to europe that i follow suit in that way as well the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thanks to Science in Sport for their support of the Cycling Podcast. As a listener to our Explore series, who might be inspired by some of the stories in these episodes to plan your own cycling adventure, you can get 25% off all your Science in Sport products. Go to scienceandsport.com and at the checkout enter the code SISCP25. That's 25% off all your Science and Sport products at scienceandsport.com with the code SISCP25. One thing I love about there being a new branch of the sport and new events is that there's a lot of imagination going into the, the naming of some of these events. The Belgian Waffle. What a great name for a race. I mean, it could have also been the title of our episode from the Ghent Six Day last week. You, you wish you'd thought of that, didn't you? I do wish I'd thought of that, but I think there's a lot of creativity going into um, some of these events and hopefully by formalizing the gravel calendar and and establishing a world championships, they're not going to sort of knock the character um, off the gravel scene that has grown organically and creatively. Um, Or even worse, Lionel, if they, they, no, but if they try and sort of... uh... Uh, try and ape it somehow like the really wacky gravel race you can imagine perhaps or something you know something organized by a a governing body yeah Yeah, a really a really wacky gravel race organized by a bureaucrat that's that's (laughs) not what we want is it not what we want um now the final person we're going to hear from in this episode richard is someone i don't know very much about at all so tell me who is finley newmark well, Finley Newmark is uh, 20 years old. Um, like you, Lionel, he uh, he, he lives and was brought up in, in the UK, but rides for Ireland under an Irish passport. You, you ride for Ireland under an Irish I, passport. I mean, one, one, not like me, I'm not 20. And uh, also, <laughs> I don't compete for Ireland. Let's co- correct those two. Uh, no, but you know, away, I mean, yeah, let's yeah, not yeah. rule out the possibility either. <laughs> <laughs> I don't tell limit, you, there'd have to be some. Yourself. There'd have to be some really specific niche of cycling created for me to win anything. Cornfield riding, um, <laughs> Finlay Newmark. Well, Finlay rode for Trinity Racing, which has has become one of the world's top development teams. Quite a few of his teammates have stepped up to the World Tour and are doing so next year. Um, he had a string of top placings in the classics as a junior in 2019. They really uh, marked him out as a, a potential classics rider. He signed with Trinity after that. And that was definitely the next step on the path to joining the World Tour. Um, but COVID struck and it had a devastating effect on the under-23 racing calendar in particular. It was more or less gone. Uh, riders had no racing, uh, a lot of training and thinking time. And Finlay, who was spent much of that year in Girona, found that very difficult he struggled and 
Well, what happened to him next is a story that we may well return to in a future episode of the Cycling Podcast, because when he lined up for his only race of 2020, he told me he was 14 kilograms lighter than he is now. And he is, he reckons now, a healthy weight. So you can imagine how extreme his um, weight loss was and how unhealthy it was. He didn't finish that first stage of the Ronde de Lizard, which he was the only race he rode in 2020. And in 2021, that's this year, um, his career took a very unexpected twist. He got an opportunity that he wasn't expecting and it took him to Kenya. And he had, his path crossed with Ian Boswell, who was somebody who offered him quite a lot of advice, it seems. Um, and this inspired a change of direction for 2022 and perhaps beyond. So let's hear from Finlay Newmark. At the start of this year, I was I was determined to still make it as a professional. I had I had the the idea that I wanted to combine it in some way with with some adventure cycling or doing some big endurance rides. Um, but it was always still uh, I want to be a world tour professional. I want to make this my career. Um, and yeah, it's, it's it's sort of only since since the early summer that I realised. Um, uh, hang on, this is there's there's a different way of going about this. Um, so what happened? What the, happened in twenty twenty one? So the racing, I've trained extremely hard um, through the winter. I was really fit, the strongest I'd ever been, really. Uh, in um, uh, when was it? March. Um, I worked with Alan Murchison, uh, the performance chef, uh, on some nutrition, and I was really sort of focusing in on just really just trusting him and what he was giving me to um to sort of uh find a balance there um and although i was still working out my relationship with food it and i and i still am like uh it was far far better than anything that ha- had happened in 2020 um so i then went to um into the year sort of focused on the, the classics that the team had lined up and obviously COVID did its, did its thing again, especially for the under 23s. And, uh, we sort of lost, uh, the first, first sort of part of our season. Um, and it ended up sort of being postponed to May, May time. We were in a team house in Belgium. Yeah. I sort of realized it would be a continued struggle with, the type of riding, the training, the uh, nutrition, the the lack of flexibility, the lack of adventure uh, that is needed for someone like me. A, 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 I don't want to put myself into a category of like I'm not. I would like I'm not the most talented person on a bike. That is a hundred percent sure. I'm a hundred percent sure of that. And for me to become a professional, I would most likely if I'm being realistic with myself, be an average professional as well and have to train and put in a lot of sacrifices and, and be selfish to a lot of people close to me to get to that point um, as a cyclist. And I wasn't sure if that at all was something that I wanted to wanted to do. Anyway, an opportunity came round to do the migration gravel race in Kenya um, through the team and it actually came about because um, Cameron Mason 
ended up breaking his uh, elbow uh, at a mountain bike race. And he was meant to be going to this race. And I was asked if I wanted to do it by uh, Andrew McQuay, the team manager. And straight away, I was like, yes, this is... I, I want to do an adventure. I want to experience the world and hopefully I can fit this around my season in some way. Um, and I'd quite actually prefer to prioritize this to a couple of big races, uh, purely just because of the life experience element. And I went to that and this was around June time. And, and from there, I just realized, hang on a second. I am surrounded here by adventurous, well, well-rounded like really um, intelligent, creative, adventurous uh, people who share so many similar personalities, personality traits to what I wanted to be. Um, and they were able to still love riding their bike, still ride their bike as many days of the week as they possibly can. But they didn't have the, the side of cycling that I really was struggling with, um, which was the pressures of racing a lack of adventures in, in that you can include in training. That experience seems to have almost changed the direction of your life. Is that too much? Is that an, is that an overstatement or an exaggeration? Definitely not. Um, it, it really it really has. It opened my eyes up to um, to this alternative uh, route into making my cycling my my career, but just you know very. Uh, different way to what I had imagined in January and February um, that year. Um, I or this year even. <laughs> mm. um, I travelled out there and actually I haven't done any off-road riding really in my in my life. Um, I, I feel like I had a, a few technical skills from riding on the road and doing the cobbled classics and stuff, but. In the scheme of things, uh, my technical skills uh, are much to be desired. Um, and the first ride actually on my bike I had was was in Kenya. Um, so I got the the diverge from the from the team sponsor specialized and um, traveled over there and um, did a ride in in Nairobi um, with Ian Boswell and Sule Kangani, one of the um, Kenyan one of the top Kenyan gravel riders over there. And that was just like, wow, this is so much fun. Straight off the bat, it was just like, this is just a lot of fun. It's like, it's like road riding, but with, but kind of scary, but thrilling, but kind of not quite as technical as mountain biking. And I just, I just really, really loved that. Um, and then obviously the race was just, uh, it was, it was so uh, different in so many ways from the from the atmosphere of the surrounding of the race. So being in the middle of the Masai Mara um, to being with uh, sixty people that I'd never met before, to um, being on a off road bike and doing some technical sections that I had never even dreamt of doing, and I was sort of so far out of my comfort zone that I was almost. I was like numb for five days <laughs> during the race where it just sort of felt like I was just, uh, I was on a different planet and I was a different person almost. And, um, I just, I just loved every minute of it. I made some friends that 
I am still really good friends with uh, and will continue to be friends with um, connections with so many different people in so many different parts of an area of the sport that I didn't even really know existed at the start of the year. And it was quite overwhelming, actually. Uh, like I had been, there were definitely times where I was enjoying, I loved uh, the whole racing side of it at times. In fact, the majority of the time, I, I loved all of the the road racing and the competitiveness but there were some really really hard times um and i don't want people to feel sorry for that whatsoever that's not that's not what i'm trying to say it's just um this just felt really different it felt very free it felt very unjudgmental uh like no one there had any judgment on um how you're wearing your cycling kit what you were wearing how your bike was set up uh is that something you feel like, in in road racing even at your level you know where you you, you know you're riding for a, a good team with good riders um is that something that you you feel could be quite i don't know oppressive even riding the races you were riding 100 percent. The, the 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 judgmental side of of road cycling i feel is almost a, like an all-time high um with just uh social media and 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 uh there's just there's these expectations that that you um even just like the socks over or over or under your your leg warmers um handlebar bags on 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 50k road rides like hairy legs or not hairy legs it's just it's just like why what <laughs> where 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 is this what what benefit does it does it bring to cycling to to have these expectations um i really i i don't know uh, and i i'm not going to sit here and say that i didn't also uh have have these expectations i i didn't like it when people it's a it's a natural feeling to to not like something that's different or um or or not the way you would do it it's just it's it's challenging and and that can be annoying sometimes um but this atmosphere at the gravel at, at a gravel race just felt extremely free everybody was eating breakfast together whereas at um a race a team race you would get everybody sitting at a breakfast table looking at different tables and sort of like talking about oh look there's that rider or he he did this at this race or um geez look at look at that guy's uh calves or look at look at their team bikes and it's very sort of like standoff between between each of the teams um whereas this was kind of uh everybody just wanted to meet everyone and, and get on with everyone and chat about where they'd come from and how they ended up in Nairobi doing a gravel race. How do you then alter course, I suppose, because you were on this, on this path. Um, it's a big decision to, to, to leave it or to take a, a kind of turn off it. Um, how, how big a decision did that feel? And how did you then go about, um, you know, creating the the opportunities for you to enable that to happen. Yeah, so I, like it might not seem. I can see exactly that it might not seem like a big decision to someone that isn't looking. Like to some friends that I have outside of cycling, they think, "Well, you're still you're still riding a bike. Like, what's the difference? Um, you're, you're riding on some gravel rather than riding on um, ride rather than riding on the road. Like, <laughs> what's the difference?" But but for me personally it would always be my dream to uh, become a world tour rider and all of the world tour races apart from Strada Bianchi and Paris-Roubaix and whatever 
a rule on smooth tarmac and um a rule in these communities and teams that that i had grown up dreaming of and to change change that to uh a series of races that have only been around for um or only been known of uh, at a high level for the last five or ten years um and there are there isn't a structure around teams or sponsors or a direct link to where you're going to earn some money uh felt like a quite a big decision for me um luckily gravel was already gravel and adventure cycling was already on their their radar with um cameron mason doing a couple events and being keen in that kind of thing i definitely made it obvious uh from like march time that that was something i'd be interested in um the team sponsors uh specialized and SRAM, wahoo they're all really keen on that sort of thing they they were really pushing um the idea as a team that we are multidiscipline uh disciplinary um and uh we would have the mountain bike side we have the the cyclocross side you got the road side and having a few riders doing the gravel really just made sense. Andrew uh, McQuaid, the team manager, was sort of con- consistently throwing me opportunities um, saying, do you, do you want to go here? Do you want to try this? Um, there's there's this event, uh, there's that event. And and I just tried my best to say yes to as much of it as I could. And uh, I really appreciate that, that he was that flexible um, with one of his riders and was able to provide those opportunities with no uh, expectation for then me to turn up to um, the tour series or, um, or, or other, or other races. And that, that, that really wouldn't suit me for that. Well, Lionel, that was Finlay Newmark, a young rider, 20 years old, embarking on uh, something completely different. And I found what he had to say about the judgmental world of professional road cycling or road racing in, in general very interesting and, and uh, revealing and as i said we might return to his story in a future episode of the cycling podcast but we've heard in this episode of explore from a few different people with different involvement in in gravel racing there are lots more as well of course and it, it's definitely not a a subject a, a branch of the sport that's going away it's only growing and you know my trip to Veneto recently and especially around some of the the companies involved in the bike industry the Campagnolos, CD, Villier, all these companies are hugely invested in um in gravel now I mean Ian Boswell said that he heard some major bike brands um sales of gravel bikes um were, were greater than sales of road bikes this year for the first time so it's a huge it's hugely important to the industry the industry is hugely important within the world of gravel racing too um and that's something that will you know will also I, I suppose threaten that integrity if you like of that that scene perhaps it's a threat also an opportunity of course um, but there's lots going on with gravel and I think we'll be returning to it in a big way next year yeah very interesting I particularly um, found the point about imposing sort of rules and uh, restrictions on who 
uh, can and can't ride and how they can and can't ride that sort of thing it's it is quite common in cycling i mean even our trip to belgium last week i took my winter bike which i ride here on the road in the united kingdom and the the done thing here is that you have mud guards in the winter to spare well the riders behind you uh, from getting splattered with the, the 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 wet from the roads but in belgium the, there's no um sort of you know, cultural place for mudguards to kind of look down upon, I think, almost. Um, yeah, that is interesting. I just think, I just think you know, even with the, the, the sort of endurance bikepacking scene, you know, when EF announced their alternative calendar, there were a few people within that scene, established uh, people who had created events that, that had grown up their own way, who, you know, not necessarily close to the idea of World Tour pros taking part, but, but wanted the World Tour pros to take part on uh, the, the terms that have been created by the events themselves and, and to honour the spirit of those events rather than turn everything into uh, just another type of world tour cycling. And I can certainly um, sympathise with that point of view. You know, we want to keep everything feeling authentic and uh, to some extent different. And yet um, we also want to, to encourage all kinds of cycling and see... Um, them grow prosper and thrive i mean it would be um, it would be amazing to think that there was a uh, a gravel world championship race but in our own uh, minds i suppose my own mind what gives that credibility would it be having wout van art matthew van der poel julian alaphilippe racing or would it be creating a whole um different group of genuine gravel race stars i would mm. suggest a, a mix of the two really is the, yeah. is the key to it thriving yeah you're you're, you're hitting several nails on on several heads there i think this is these questions are really important aren't aren't they um i also don't object i must say to people in america people who've been involved in the gravel scene and or just followed it for several years to feel protective of it because as ian mentioned um road racing in in the u.s has never really taken off you know the tour of california we were always comparing it perhaps negatively to races in Europe because the roads are different and, and it lend, they lend themselves to different kind of racing often unfortunately a, a less exciting form of racing gravel the, the the opportunities for gravel riding and gravel racing in the U.S. are unique to that country and if the U.S. wants to own gravel racing I think that's absolutely fine I mean different parts of the world have, have different styles of, of racing Belgium you wouldn't you wouldn't take that Belgian style of racing and try and impose it somewhere else um the strada bianca of 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 uh, tuscany are unique to that region and um, that's what we love about cycling that it takes us places uh, to experience different cultures and different roads and different landscapes that's kind of the point and so it seems to me to be logical um that the center of gravel racing be in the u.s but that's not to say that it, it, it can't be done at all elsewhere but I think if the US wants to own gravel racing I think that's absolutely fine um, and uh, yeah it's going to be an interesting story to follow that's for sure um, and we'll be returning to it in future episodes of Explore certainly this has been the final episode in this mini series of Explore but there's lots more in the bag for a future mini or perhaps maxi series as well um, but that's all for now from me and Lionel thank you very much Lionel thank you Richard 